Hello, Tom here. Before we start the show, I just wanted to play you in with a little bit of atmosphere, a little bit of slow radio, perhaps. And that Atmos is from Bespoke, the hand-built bike show, uh, which was my destination for this month's episode. So stick around for that. Uh, But first of all, here I am with Lizzie. You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, I'm Tom Wally and I'm with Lizzie Banks for the next hour. Record. (laughs) Lizzie, (laughs) are we paying you 75 grand for this hour? Unfortunately not, but that is the unspec or sorry, the speculated uh, amount that it will cost you if you want to buy Ganna's new 3D printed titanium Pinarello track bike. Now this this is pure speculation, which obviously, you know, we're just going straight in with the speculation today on this. Um, you know, Ganna last week, I'm sure you'll all know by now, absolutely smashed the previous record uh, on the track for the hour record, uh, which was previously owned by Dan Big who who went and got that record only in August um and and Ganna was on this really hyped up new prototype frame from Pinarello but it was actually the same frame that Dan Bigham rode back in August um and the interesting thing about this is that it was a prototype is that legal at the moment I didn't know the rules about prototypes whether things had to be commercially available well, exactly. That is exactly right, Tom. So there are different rules for different events. And before Ganna and Bigham went to go and ride this hour record, there wasn't a rule about prototype bikes being ridden. But after Ganna did his attempt, the UCI have changed their rules and they have brought in a new rule for the prototype equipment as of January the 1st, 2023. Any equipment in development phase and not yet available for purchase must be subject of of an authorization request to the UCI equipment unit before its use. So now this is speculation that that, uh, Pinarello have said that it's available for 75,000 euros. But a similar thing happened with the British cycling track bike, the Lotus track Mm. bike, which we talked about back in, I think, February 2020. Um, And the... That, that bike was available to purchase for a hell of a lot of money, but it just so happened that the lead time was going to be until just after the Olympic Games. And this is quite a, quite a common thing. But now the UCI have ruled out allowing the use of of prototypes in uh, in the hour record attempt. So it's been it's been an interesting week in the world of in the world of track cycling. It's been an interesting week in the world of Dan Bigham because he's only gone and um, again sort of low key. I'd, I'd missed this. I didn't because re- a lot of the talk about Dan Bigham has been you know why don't Team GB make more use of him? You know why is he not part of the pursuit squad? He is part of the pursuit squad now, and he's just won a gold medal. He is, and he's just got married also to Joss Loudon, also professional cyclist last Friday. Congratulations, Joss and Dan. And uh, yeah, then flown over to Paris for the Track World Championships, and he was part of uh, the gold medal winning team there. And that was interesting in itself, because of course, Gano had just come from this absolutely phenomenal record, putting 1.2 kilometers into the previous record over the hour. And I think Italy, who were such a good, who are such a good track you know, team pursuit team anyway, they were expected to win and they were just pips to the line by the British team. So it's really, really exciting to see, you know, both Dan Bigham in that team and the influence that he's got on that team. And I I wonder how much of his expertise they're using as well. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's a very, it's, <laughs> It's a very, very interesting thing because obviously he works for Ineos Grenadiers um, and he also works for the Danish team who were who were third at the World Championships. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure where the conflict of interest comes in, but um, yeah, congratulations to Dan for his marriage and being on the podium at the World Track Championships. No, it is, uh, it is extraordinary. I think the, the one thing I took away from looking at Ganna's bike, you know, the, this 75 grand sort of uh, dream machine, um, the interesting thing, it was on clincher tyres. Um, so obviously, I mean, Dave worked out that clincher tyres were fastest. Mm. I, I think it's quite common, actually, that clinchers with um, 
latex tubes are very very fast but like you said they will have tested everything and one thing that I thought was really interesting that I actually spotted from one of their promotional videos on the day that that Ghana was doing the attempt was they had the promotional video of the bike um, and they were using images from the wind tunnel testing and of course we saw this British cycling Lotus track bike with these flared forks and flared seat stays and we sort of wondered whether it would be the start of a trend of when people created new frames if they would go to these wider sort of wider winged forks and seat stays and on the video although what Pinarello have created is is in fact an incredibly slim bike so slim in fact that the forks and the seat stays you can barely see any light between them uh, and the wheels the Princeton Carbon Works wheels that Ineos Grenadiers have been using for a while now but on the video they had these um, I would say even more extremely winged um arms that they were adding to the bike to test in the wind tunnel so they've obviously tried both of these and decided that actually the the narrow you know this incredibly narrow bike is the fastest i I love all this stuff in fact um this week i was speaking to someone i can't reveal his name but he describes himself as working in the shadows of cycling um and there is there is this group who sort of live in the shadows um often associated with things like 3D printing, who are just making little bespoke things happen that are then having very sort of big effects. It's, it's fascinating. I, honestly, I'm... Is I'm, this Henry Furness who we've already had on the podcast? This is not, but but it's not. But also, you know, we've, we've spoken to a few of these sort of secret squirrel types. Um, but it is it is sort of fascinating what sort of happens behind the scenes and, and the way that it's these characters who then try and influence the big brands to sort of mm. to make these changes because big brands are actually quite reluctant to to change the materials for instance they're using or the, or their methods you know um so yes yeah, so exactly. i'm I fascinated mean- by the dark arts behind this this stuff Creating new models if you're doing a carbon frame is incredibly expensive. And so obviously creating a 3D printed titanium frame is an expensive process. But if you can do that, and if you, you, know, if you have the wherewithal to do that, um, and you're able to see that that is going to be a very successful frame, then you know that it's worth creating the mold for, for the carbon frame to replicate it on, on you know, a, a larger mass-produced scale, or at least on the scale where you can provide it to, to national teams and things. But um, it, it's interesting as well, because there are so, you know, both, both Bigham's and Ghana's record attempts were so intricately controlled. And I don't know if you watched both of them, Tom. Well, do you know what I did? So, so with Ghana, I just got the kids to bed and I was like, I'll, go and, I'll just go and check how Ghana's doing. You know, when you watch the hour record, it's normally, the commentators are normally quite tense, it's subdued because it's, it, it, it's often it's uh, very close whether they're going to break the record or not. And I think I'd got there with about 10 minutes to go <laughs> and everyone was so, you know, they were just speculating how much he's going to break it by because effectively he'd already broken the record record by that point you know he just had to stay on the bike didn't he yeah I mean it's really interesting so the thing is about about Bingham's attempt attempt and I think we already spoke about this on the podcast before was was the the incredibly controlled environment in Mm. which he did it yeah um there was I wouldn't really call it a crowd a number of family and friends who were there and they weren't allowed to cheer until the end of the attempt um we know that people create heat and when there's a lot of people they create more heat that changes both the atmospheric pressure in the in the velodrome and the you know very importantly the conditions for the rider and the hotter it is the less power you're going to be able to put out and the larger and more excited the crowd the hotter it gets so Ghana did have more towards what one might call a crowd at his event but the crowd was actually briefed by Rod Ellingworth before ah, the event and they were asked this. not not to cheer until a certain point in the event because they wanted to make sure that it was very controlled um, and it was ridden the way that they wanted it to be ridden and only in that last portion of the ride when you're really suffering and you just need that boost from the crowd that that's when the crowd was allowed to start cheering um, and then in addition to that, there's, there's all of the other scientific data that they, that they had obviously been building up, uh, you know, build, been building in the run up to, to Dan Bigham's event. And then they were able to look at it and really refine it going into Ghana's attempt. And, and I just think that, you know, so many people going into this said, of course, 
he's gonna of course he's gonna make it but I definitely had doubts you know he flew to Australia and back yeah well he, his form hasn't looked great has it because he wasn't great in the um the time trial at the Worlds you know yeah, compared I mean, to you know, but obviously maybe he's he'd been focusing on an hour on this hour track effort rather than the sort of effort she needs to do on the road I, I don't know but he know I wasn't super confident in I mean yeah, I, I don't know exactly what his what his form was like, but obviously it was good enough. I, I just got the feeling yeah. that he could have been even better. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, I think it's very difficult because we're always very quickly quick to say if somebody, you know, wasn't good or whatever. But mm. he was still he was still seventh, you know, he was still within a minute of the winner at the World Championships. It wasn't, I would say, a course that is perhaps really suited to, to him. Um uh, but he well, do you mean, it's, do you mean it doesn't go in circles? <laughs> doesn't go in circles for <laughs> With one loads hour, of banking. 40 minutes. <laughs> um, you know, he wasn't in perhaps quite the form that we expect. Um, and and flying to Australia and back has a huge toll on your, takes a whole huge toll on your mm. body. You've got, you know, a, a, a whole half a day time difference there and then back again. And in addition to that, a lot of people who were attending world championships um, actually fell ill. And so, yeah. you know, that's that's a factor that sometimes you just simply can't control when you're on a plane for that long. You're you're living in an accommodation with, you know, many other people who've come from l- so many different teams. Um, you know, you've got one year's mechanics coming in from different teams as well. So, I, you know, I have to say I knew that he was physically capable of it, but I wasn't certain that he was going to do it considering the circumstances. And I think that it's really important to take that, those factors into account. And it then makes the record look even more ridiculously sensational. But he's already said he's not going to be doing it again anytime soon. Well, I mean, I was going to ask you that. Do you think anyone else is going to do it again anytime soon? Because it sort of looks—it sort of looks out of reach a little bit. Not yeah. just because of the, the the actual distance that he's ridden, but because of the resources that went into it. And there's there's mm. not you know I spoke to Alex Dowsett uh, just the other day. His his final race, you know, and he was talking about what he learned from his failed attempt but there's no way I mean he could have gone a lot further had he had the sort of backing that that, that Ghana had and there's not many riders that can can get that backing no absolutely and when when Alex Dowsett did his attempt in Mexico he spoke about it afterwards about how much energy went into putting it all together you know it was just him and his partner Chanel you know, doing all of the organisation for it. And they were having to fundraise all of the money to get there. Um, They were having to do all of the organisation and logistics to get there. Um, They did take a very, very small support crew out there with them. But it's absolutely exhausting doing that. And and it was, again, one of the things that struck me when Dan Biggum was doing it was he was just blown away by the level of support that he had there and he said you know I don't even have to cook my breakfast cook my meals wash up anything do my laundry and and I think that we we saw that reaction from Dan because he's not used to being in that environment you know Ghana's Ghana's used to being in that environment he's been with Ineos Grenadiers for a number of years and and he knows how he gets looked after so you you maybe wouldn't necessarily find those insights after an after an interview with Ghana because it's just normal for him and it's only when we hear about it from a rider like Dan Bigham and we could then compare that to Alex Dowsett's experience that you realize that it's it's just next level and I I often think actually when people talk about people often talk to me about professional cycling and they say like well don't you just get this done for you don't you just get that done for you it's, it, it it's not it's not quite you know how you might think it is professional cycling isn't quite as uh, smooth and um you know maybe well run not well run that's not really the right word but you don't get as much done for you as you as you might think unless you're in a team like Ineos Grenadiers where they do have the resources to really do everything the budgets the budgets in cycling aren't that big even in men's cycling they're not really that huge so it is interesting um we're talking we're talking of Ineos actually I mean um on your side of things Lizzie they are dipping the toe in the water aren't they of uh women's cycling they've formed a massive <laughs> yes, they've got absolutely. a really big big team they've formed a very big team <laughs> they've got they've got a huge team of one um and finally the 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 signing of Pauline Ferrand-Prevot has been confirmed which is really exciting because she's the current uh f- current four-time or current four-discipline world championship holder I, I should That's say it, which is extraordinary you know it in, is extraordinary in any sport that is extraordinary but you know you know what she's done in cycling is um 
you know, yeah, I mean, you, it's it's like almost being a in in boxing, being a four weight world champion or something like that. You know, it what she has done is incredible. It really, I mean, I yeah, she's just she's one of the all time best. Um, you know, short track, XCO, mountain bike, marathon, and now the gravel world champion. Um, and she, she, you know, has talent on the road, as we all know. Um, but I think, you know, clearly she just doesn't have the time or, you know, maybe the, the interest for the road at the moment. But it, it does kind of pose speculation as to whether Ineos will have a, a road team in the future. But for now, I mean, it's very much focused on the mountain bike team. And Tom Pidcock has, of course, been racing, racing off road with Ineos Grenadiers. He's been racing on the mountain bike side as an independent rider. So the school of thought is now that they will register a team for mountain biking and a team for cyclocross. Um, Tom Pidcock has been racing on an unbranded BMC two-stroke and four-stroke. And with Pauline Ferrand-Provot also coming over from BMC, I wonder if the happy unbranded marriage will continue or whether Pinarello will invest in creating a mountain bike frame. But, you you know, you've got two two champions there. So you're going to have to... um, do a nice a nice bit of refining of a mountain bike frame. You know, you can't just put anything out. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. I mean, this is just pure speculation. So I mean, the, with the with the men, <laughs> the, the whole speculation, thing is pure, right? Pure like, speculation, no, listen, it? like the men's hour record right now seems a little bit out of reach for many at the moment. Mm. The women's record. Uh, is not the same and it's there's not been an attempt with the sort of backing that Ineos can give you um Pauline Fran Provo is probably not going to try an hour record on a 75 grand Pinarello or would she but she probably could could she I mean could she <laughs> I think I think Pauline Fran Provo is something that could do anything but I would be very surprised if she went down that route I do think that there is room for more with the women's hour record I think that Ellen van Dyke did a stunning job um but i think that i think that she could get more out of herself um perhaps with more training on the track i think she could hold the line better and just by holding the line better you can actually go a lot further um i wonder if she had a more controlled environment um like we saw you know with with the audience uh if that would help her if she had sort of a, a smoother run um, because she said herself she was very, very nervous. And so perhaps if she went to do that a second time without that pressure, she would go a bit further. Um, and I hope that, you know, with Joss Loudon having done it and then Ellen Van Dyke, it will raise the profile of, of that. And, you know, maybe we'll see a rider like Marlon Royce go for it. But but no, Tom, I don't think we are going to see anybody do it with that sort of level of support that we've seen in Eos Grenadiers. They're simply, I mean, I think Trek Segafredo gave Ellen a huge amount of support. Um, but what we see with Ineos Grenadiers is is just ne- next level. They have the budget to have the best of everything, the best technical engineers, the best performance, you know, specialists, the best nutritionists, the best biochemists, you know, the best of the best skin suits. They can they can pay for whatever they want and they will do. Um and I just don't think that there's that budget within women's cycling to, to be able to dedicate that much that much time and that much resource to it. Well, Lizzie, um, I'm going to go and look at some really nice bikes. Um, have you got any more news before I nip off? <laughs> no, that's, that's it for my roundup of Ineos Grenadier news this, this month. <laughs> 75 grand an hour Ineos pay, Lizzie, for that. It's incredible. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton. Cycling podcast, team car at the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, and this is Lionel here to tell you that this episode of Service Course is sponsored by Noom, which is an app that I've been using for over a year, and if you've been listening to the cycling podcast, you'll know that I've lost quite a lot of weight. But I suppose when we're talking about weight, we think about the number that shows up when you step on the scales. But actually, it wasn't about the numbers for me when I began, because if you'd asked me back in September 21 what I weighed, I probably would have underestimated by about 10 kilograms. I really had no idea what I weighed. I didn't know uh, the number of calories I was consuming each day. And so as a result, I had no idea that the amount of exercise I was doing, which was a reasonable amount of running and cycling, was just not going to be enough to shift the weight. The balance was all wrong. And I suppose I thought, well, I'm over mid-40s now. 
uh, that's it, that's me, uh, that weight is just not going to come off. I didn't really realise that there was another way and Noom has helped show me that there is another way and I've stuck with it for 13 months simply because I want to stay within the weight where I feel happiest and where running and cycling feel a lot more enjoyable than they did a year ago and they were already pretty enjoyable then to be honest. Anyway, the Noom app has had a couple of little changes recently. They've introduced something called Noom Coin, which sounds very interesting. You'll have to sign up to the app to see how that all works, but it's just another incentive to stick with the program. And they've also changed the traffic light coding of different food groups. It used to be red, yellow, and green, but red gives the impression that those types of foods are to be completely avoided it's a kind of warning sign isn't it red so they've actually changed that to orange and i think that kind of makes the message more realistic that not there's no particular food that is completely off limits and that's certainly uh, a message that i appreciated because i don't like to be thinking that oh, i shouldn't be having this type of food or i shouldn't be drinking this glass of wine or beer and that's really not the new message at all I should just say, if you're looking at losing a significant amount of weight, do take medical advice before signing up for Noom or any weight loss program. But certainly I can recommend the Noom approach because it's worked for me and I've been very happy with it. If you'd like to give it a go, go to noom.com slash cycle. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash cycle and sign up for your trial today. So as listeners to this podcast, you'll know that both Lizzie and I adore beautiful looking bikes, as I know that you do. I'm particularly into hand-built and unusual bikes, and that's why for this episode, I went to Bespoked, the hand-built bike show. Bespoked is one of the shows I've really wanted to visit ever since we started this podcast. And with one thing and another, particularly the pandemic, I've not been able to go. There's been a couple of years when the show hasn't been on. It returned last year in Harrogate. And this year it took place at the Lee Valley Velodrome in East London. And I went along and I began with a very strange, unusual and unexpected meeting. A High Commissioner or Ambassador does many strange things and we know we knew about Dan, who's from Namibia. We know that he's a very well-known Namibian cyclist and in fact my colleague's husband is also a cyclist and he was very excited to meet Dan as well. So that's why the three of us came here. I'm Linda Scott, I'm the Namibian High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. What's exciting to us about Dan is the fact that he's hand making these bicycles and so he's he's basically bringing um, manufacturing to the country to his area which is really it's on the edge of the desert Um, it's a little bit remote but it's the most incredible area and secondly he has done a lot for children in his area as well so he's had cycling schools and all that kind of thing so what he's doing for the community is incredible for me, the interesting thing is the area where he comes from, the people who live there, they are very, um, they have a culture which is centered on cattle. So I love the fact that he's got this sort of cow-like um, aspect on the, on, the, on the bicycle. It's really gorgeous. Um, and I just love the colors. It's really Namibian colors. You see, these are the colors of our flag. So the, the gold is, as you say, the land, the... Um, we usually use green as the desert so that's with the land so this is the green here the blue is the sky and the red is the blood of the people who were shed for our independence so we only got independence 32 years ago the same time that the Berlin Wall fell and um, that was when um, we got independence from South Africa Um, And before that, we were a German colony. What I appreciate about Dan and these bikes is that the people that he works with are from the area and that really he's uplifting the people in the area. And he's really making that little town, which is kind of becoming an um, artistic-focused town, is really, it's growing the focus there. There's a lot, there's water there in the middle. It's like a little oasis in the desert. And... um, so it, it's really exciting to see how this town is, is moving forward because of Dan. You have had quite the intro 
Dan. <laughs> Quite. You, I mean, you're interviewing the wrong person. <laughs> Hi, my name is Dan Craven, also known as Dan from Nam, Namibia, uh, ex-professional cyclist, and now frame builder and, you know, trying to make Onguza bicycles happen. Take us to your little oasis in the desert, as I've had it described. How's it going out there? Well, it's becoming really hot. You know, we're already hitting the 40s and summer hasn't even arrived yet. Uh, but it's, it's truly, you know, small town on the edge of the desert, as my ambassador said. <laughs> and, I mean, the workshop is just flourishing. Like, we, we launched the bikes yesterday to, for sale globally. But the workshop has been buzzing away for the last, like, buzzing away for the last five years. But the last five months have really, like, lifted off. And we've hired a new builder since we last spoke. So we've already got three guys with me in the workshop. Um, and it's just, you know, it just gets better and better and better. Nothing else. You are absolutely repping Namibia. The colors are everywhere. The flag is everywhere. The br- I mean, the br- in the brand itself, it's, it speaks Namibia. I mean, you could probably perhaps tell us how you do that. Thank you. Um, marry the right woman. <laughs> um, so my wife is absolutely amazing and she's helped so much. Because um, the colors have to, you know, mean something. And that's part of the reason why we, do, we don't do color options. Um, because the colors speak for us. And the colors represent us in so many ways. Like the first drop of gravel bikes, which is a, a light hue of a green... I love to call it May because in the month of May in Namibia after the rain season as everything starts to dry out for the very long and dry winter ahead you see that color everywhere the funky cow fork stem it's you know it's a it's a cow patches but it's a bright yellow background uh is very much it's so namibian because cows are so important to every single culture in Namibia. It doesn't matter what your mother tongue is, cows are important. Uh, but the yellow is the bright vibrancy of our people. And most people, if you think of Namibia, it's like, oh, it's the oldest desert in the world. It's the largest sand dunes in the world. We've got the largest population of cheetahs and we've got wild elephants that don't have a fence around them. But to me, the special thing about Namibia are the people. Like, And if you come from a small town in Namibia like I do and you go cycling out into the vast expanse of nothingness, which is the meaning of the word, the name Onguza, a.k.a. desert, you go out into this vast expanse of nothingness. If you bump into another person on a bicycle, you don't wave or nod. You stop. You go over to them. You start a conversation and you you make a buddy in the middle of nowhere. And that that kind of thing doesn't happen elsewhere you kind of have to go the further you go into you know the depth of the desert the more you have in common with people that you think you have nothing in common with well you're um the there's a road bike edge behind us in a (laughs) a very pale sandy color with the brighter yellow um sort of cow print on the forks and on the stem it's an absolutely stunning bike and you're talking about i mean it's one of the best looking bikes i've ever seen quite frankly um you're talking about you know the um, stopping and having conversations i just wonder what sort of conversations the bikes provoke i mean people are now seeing these i guess out there in the villages yes i mean so do you think that the builders who built these bicycles i mean they i've known them for 23 years and they have been doing I would call it your average job in Namibia, which is not a very high-skill, high-paying job. But it's the reason I start. I thought this was even possible from the beginning was because they are so good with their hands. And it's like, if you are good with your hands and you add a little bit of teaching and the proper equipment, you can. You're already there, and and so this bicycle is is. You know, it's number 35, I believe. Number one and two were bicycles that they built themselves, that they ride around town, that they ride to work on every single day, Pietrus and Zacharias. And they're absolutely amazing human beings. I love them to death. 
And so you can imagine in the small town where people aren't used to seeing anything made locally, these beautiful bicycles are riding around town and with these guys and with a huge smile on your face. And they have been stopped and asked, even by tourists, where did you get that bike from? And they say, I made it. And people without doubt do not believe them. And that is part of the thing that we are trying to, to basically change and be like, no, no, beautiful things can come from places you don't expect them to come from. We, we haven't arranged it yet because we only started selling bicycles yesterday, but we have planned very much, we will ship the bike to you wherever you are. But what I really want you to do is to come to Namibia and pick it up. And I don't want you to come on your own. I want people to come and pick up their bikes at the same time. So we have pick-up festivals. So you all come in and you meet Pietrus, you meet Zacharias. You probably have Zacharias' wife sew you some shirts because she makes beautiful dresses and made many of my shirts for me. See the workshop, see the farm. We go for a ride together. Doing that with like-minded people who are all buying the same bike as you the community that it creates that is that is ideal can someone blow the amazing road clear a siren whistle go on guaranteed to work every time absolutely they've been making this whistle since the middle of the 19th century i think they've pretty much perfected it by now is this your main business at Bespoke, selling whistles? No. <laughs> no. What else is it you this, do? This was a crazy little COVID project that we ended up doing with uh, Hudson. It's actually the oldest whistle maker in the world. And they make the uh, mechanism and we make the cases around it. Oh, and man. we just ended up making a few for ourselves and some friends and then end up, a few people heard about it. And we've sold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of whistles all over the world. Someone said to me early on that certain products have a soul. That's why classic cars, they have a soul. He, he, I think he referred to it as insolments, and I, I really feel that. And when I saw the, the original Chatee components, I knew they had the soul of the makers in them. I'm Andy Richmond, and I'm the chief executive of Chatee. Chatee was founded in 1890 as a maker of uh, frames and bicycle components. They then went on to make motorcycles and cars. And for the first half of the 20th century, they were probably the finest component maker in the world. And they were particularly well known for their crank sets and pedals. So when we decided to revive the company in 2017, obviously we thought we'd start When you say that. revive the company, how do you revive the company? Did you, did you, was, it, was it defunct? Did you yeah, buy exactly, it up? Yeah, exactly. So the company that actually gone out of business in the late 1980s, like much of the British cycle industry. And I went down the rabbit hole around 2017 when I rediscovered why? why because I had a classic bike and I was looking for what components to put on that bike and I kept hearing this repeated thing well if you're going to build that bike up Andy you've got to use Chaterley components and I knew vaguely about the, uh, the, 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 the company and the brand but I didn't know any of the real backstory and it's just an amazing story give me a part of, give, me, give me a little bit of that backstory okay so that, that they were Founded uh, in 1890 by William Chaterley, he actually uh, was one of the earliest winners of the first bicycle race in the world, which was the Catford Hill Climb. He won it, I believe, in 1888, 1889 and 1891. And uh, in 1890, the year he didn't win it, he founded the company. Uh, right, well, did he blame his chain ring? Is that what <laughs> happened? And they went on initially to make uh, components, frames, tandems. In 1903, they started making motorcycles. They had the world land speed record on a 300cc motorcycle. So you liked and wanted the chainring so much, you just basically well, I, bought I, I, and revived yeah, the company. Yeah, right. so was, I, I tracked the chainring worth it. Yeah, so making things in the UK is very hard and, you know, like anything, you have to be a little bit crazy to do something like this. But yeah, I mean, I just thought, how can this company not exist? And I, me and a couple of other people, actually a design engineer who at the time was working in Formula One, came together and just said, why don't we remake a pedal 
inspired by the original pedals that they made. And uh, it all started with that. And the team kind of built up and we're now making crank sets for modern bikes. And uh, we're just about to launch uh, a new British made crank set for the Brompton, which we're excited about. And over time, we hope to kind of go end to end on the bicycle and begin to remake hubs and brakes and handlebars and seat posts and stems and everything else. The art is really the fact that it's part art and part science. I mean, there is a lot of, obviously, engineering skill that goes into producing these, but there's also still, even with advanced manufacturing, where you think it's just all computer programming, no, it's not. There's still actually, the maker is so important in all of this and just nuancing it and prototyping it and iterating it and improving it gradually. I mean, we go through so many prototypes just kind of perfecting it and the tolerances now are so tight for modern cycling components you really have to be on it and uh, yeah I mean it's been a I don't come from a, a manufacturing background I can actually come from a technology software background it's a whole new world it's been a huge learning curve for me uh, but there's incredible skills in the UK we've kind of tapped into a lot of the kind of like automotive supply chain who work with you know, the likes of McLaren or Aston Martin and Formula One. Now, a lot of that, that, that skill and, and knowledge is there. It just hasn't been focused on the cycling industry. So we're trying to kind of revive their interest in doing all of that. You're telling me that you live in the States and you wouldn't do this, or you, you wouldn't have done this if you didn't live in the States and you weren't sort of looking back misty-eyed towards Britain. Yeah, I know. That's absolutely right. I mean, it's... Uh, when you leave the UK and you look back, you, you forget a lot of things, but certain things just really resonate, like the British countryside or... I don't know how to describe it. It's just, just certain things that just kind of... you really, really, really miss. And, and they're, what, often, they're often like minute things, aren't they? they really they tiny are. things. And, and British, manuf you know, British manufacturing, I think people, when you're in the UK, you forget how it's viewed in the rest of the world. So people absolutely love British vintage cars. And where I live, there's a huge scene, and I'll go there. And they'll be driving along in anything from MGs to Jensen interceptors to whatever. And I'll turn up with my British accent and people just wax lyrical about you know, British design and engineering and everything else. And, and I can see, you, you kind of really struck me. So when looking back, thinking about this, and I stumbled upon this company, I thought, how can this not exist? This is exactly what the UK needs to be doing in 2020. This was in 2017. You know, Brexit was going on. Everyone was talking about we need to bring jobs back to the UK. And this is exactly the kind of thing. And there's been a real renaissance in uh, frame building and in, in the bike world. But on the component side, very, very little. We thought we want to come back, have both British design and British manufacturing, not just British design. And so we went out there. It's hard to convince people that you're not completely nuts, but we managed to find some amazing people in the supply chain to work with us to do very small quantity uh, production runs. And yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's hard making things here. It's expensive. We're always about just helping people understand the story of British manufacturing and the importance of uh, making things again in the bike world here in the UK. This must be the most futuristic sounding bike here. Brands called Cybro. I wanna go find out what it's all about. We are from the north of Italy. We are from Bassano and Grappa. We are an artisanal brand and we are playing with the carbon and different material to make special bikes. Yeah, our aesthetic, our aesthetics is pretty, how do you say? It's different. So the, the bike that draws me, so I ride mostly ride fixed gear and there's a bike behind me that I want to talk about. Um, this is one of the most stunning bikes I've seen here. I sort of do my best to describe it. It has, um, well, it's a low pro style frame, so with a sloping top tube. Uh, the rear wheel has a, an incredibly deep section with Cybro written on it, which I still think gives off a sort of cyberpunk dystopia vibe, but I love it. At the front, you've got a five-spoke carbon wheel, and anyone who listens to this show knows that I'm a sucker for a tri-spoke or a five-spoke, just as long as it's an odd number. And, well, everything's changed since I got into the fixie scene. In my day, and I'm talking sort of 2009, 2010, 
the, the trend was to get narrower and narrower handlebars, and you've gone the opposite way. You, this is the, the trend, isn't it? The wide, super wide handlebars. It's a bike to enjoy the riding. It's, it's like you want to push, you want to have your force, you want to ride the bike, you want to be into the bike, wire in the bar to push exactly into the curves, but it's like to be also arrogant, why not to be boo? Come on, look at the, the shape of the lugs, they are like... I mean, that's the thing I didn't really describe is that the, the seat stays are incredibly low on the seat <laughs> tube, like incredibly low, it's a stunning bike. Yeah, I mean, we, we didn't respect any rules. We just take a geometry that was remembering the laser from Cinelli, uh, the, the, the lugs and the concept of the feeling you have from the 90s uh, cycling. Because when you ride Fixie, you want to feel uh, a bike that you feel under your leg, not something that is not that strong, but something that you can push and place in the curve and when you skid you like it and, and this come on look at that you can skid without any you just jump and boom you know I spend a lot of time in the fixie world and somehow I want every day and Peter came from the same scene in so somehow when we design the bike we we cannot leave our uh, our history i don't know how to say but come on uh, oh we have road bike we have mountain bike we have gravel bike but how can you forget the the, the where you start no hey i was attracted to you because i love um Crossley metal bikes. Oh, really? I've spoken yeah. to Duncan, isn't I it? I recognise your voice. I'm, I'm yeah. from the cycling podcast. Yeah, that's yeah. I recognise you. I'm Tom. Nice to meet you. Tom, good to meet you, Pete. Hi, Sorry. Pete. Nice to oh, meet yeah. you. All right, let's do that. Let's do that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think I've, it's Duncan, isn't it, from Crossley? Yeah, He's Duncan. Like, yeah. He's just. This uh, is not his stand, though. This yeah. is your stand. So this is my stand. This is Aravis. Um, Aravis bags. So I make bike bags. Um, mainly focused on custom frame bags. What was your um, sort of path to to doing this? Um, I basically started making bags for myself uh, and then for a few friends and then tried to sell a few and it's kind of gone from there really. I do it part-time um, but yeah, it's it's great to be able to come to a show like this and you know show what I'm making and I literally work out of my house and I'm just based down the road in Walthamstow so it's nice to, yeah, it's a local show for me and yeah, it's been good. I knew I was in the right place. You lot listening you'll know that as well as bikes one of my other passions is video games and particularly arcade culture have you built this cab and this game for the show so the story behind this Tom is I, like I say I make the bags uh, part time and my day job is I'm a school teacher so I teach at a school just down the road from the velodrome here in Leytonstone and last year with the students we built two of these arcade machines and then the children learned how to program their own games to play on them so I've very kindly borrowed one of the machines for the weekend and rebranded it. And I have uh, programmed a little game called Bike Packers. And the high score this weekend is going to win a custom frame bag made for them. I've warmed up my game in. Game in hand, I'm ready. One hand on the joypad, on the joystick. Let's go. Level one, escape the city. Well, listeners, I'd love to tell you that I was absolutely awesome at Bikepackers, and I smashed the high score. But, I've got to say, some outrageous crash detection on that game meant I only got 197 points, so no free bags for me. But a definite highlight of Bespoked. It's one thing when you walk around this show, if you notice like a handlebar grip, on one of the display tables. That means that the bike is an award winner. And this is an award winner over here from Avalanche Cycles. Uh, we win for the best road bikes. Wow, and uh, oh, t- and tell us a bit about who you are. Uh, so we are a couple of uh, French frame builders. We are based in Paris, in France. 
and we work uh, only bespoke bicycle uh, in steel and stainless steel. Uh, before to be a framboiser, yeah. no, we was a product designer, oh. so we we was uh, okay to design and uh, draw some technical objects, but uh, compared to uh, our studies, we we'll, we we'll lose progressively the um, workshop part because when you are a product designer, it's not your job. You just have to visit some workshop, but you you don't make the thing so that's why we choose to change uh, the way of life to create um, avalanche because we have the conception part with technical part and something with a 3d part and we we can go until the end with the fabrication so for for us the perfect match brand here called Eastwood Bikes and I believe they are named after Clint Eastwood so uh, I'm going to go and have a showdown with them. Why have you named a bike brand after Clint Eastwood? Because I was a police officer and retired and he was a police officer. It's as simple as that, I needed a name. <laughs> so what are these, are these, what, so these you're, when you say Clint Eastwood you're really thinking Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry Clint Eastwood. Dirty Harry Clint Eastwood, the best film of all time sorry but there we go. Go and head punk, make my frame. I don't yeah. know. Oh, yeah, you got it. I, yeah, I'll uh, have it that one. That's it. That's all over Insta now. Tell me about um, Eastwood bikes then. I was hoping they were they were connected to Eastwood in Nottinghamshire, but no. Uh, sorry, no, they're not. Um, steel frame, Columbus steel tubing. Um, I'm a new builder, so I've not built very many, but I'm hoping that uh, the show will bring a lot of people around. They seem to like the bikes. Hopefully that will translate into people wanting to buy frames in the future and obviously steel bikes are where it's at. I talk to a lot of people here who've sort of had a one career before being a bike builder. A lot of those um, have been in industries where there's sort of transferable skills, you know, design or whatever. Police officer doesn't really sound like that. No, but prior to that I used to work for Western Helicopters, which is now Leonardo. So that's where the mechanical interest and the background came from. Took 27 years time out, did, did a bit of coppering and now it's it's back to the engineering. I did my course um, a year or two back with Bicycle Academy and I wanted to build a bike that I could put road wheels on to get my mates on a Sunday and the same frame would be big enough so I could fit gravel tyres on to do a bit of off-roading. So it's two bikes in one and I wanted it for me, to fit me and made out of steel obviously because it's, it's just an awesome material and I know that I could make it myself. So hopefully other people sort of would like that. I know it goes against the whole N plus one thing. You need two bikes, you need a road bike and a gravel bike. But, you know, so, sorry to all the people out there that uh, uh, their wives tell them that you can't have N plus one. But in reality, and obviously uh, being a bit more serious, the frame is designed so it doesn't look silly with road wheels on. You can keep up with everybody on the peloton sun on a Sunday, but you put gravel wheels on it and you use it for commuting or as a winter bike. Cycling podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, Come here, Drizzy. Uh, let me bring the genius out here. Bring the ge- You're not the genius. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I just buy bikes. <laughs> I buy bikes from him. I'm a fan. <laughs> so, so I came all the way from Belgium because like this guy's a legend, bro. Is, uh, when you say legend, tell me how legendary this guy is. Ten years, been making bikes for the kids on the street. Like, obviously, you can't see the bikes right now on the podcast, but um, there's bikes models he'll grab a, a bike something throw it in the river you know like someone just discard this bike he'll grab it he'll see what he can do with it he'll make it simple and always in the light of a classic uh, bike you know he's a classic bike builder always putting like for example the the, the brakes uh, all classic style it's a little bit of a throwback to the old sort of junkers days and mountain bike you know uh-huh. taking an old frame and throwing it down a Marin County hill what's the what's the thinking behind the brand you just can't you don't like frames going to waste? I don't like frames going to waste. I love building frames, but I wouldn't be uh, able to, to buy like frame jigs or tubes or whatever. So I put some scrap bikes, cut them up, flip the tubes, weld them back together, and then like a whole other bike, a whole other driving experience. My name is Dries, and I'm from uh, Leuven, Dries Boussif. And my bicycle brand is called BCB, Boussif Custom Bikes. Wow. 
Who's um, well? You're you're a customer, so you've yeah. Yeah. how many of these bikes have you got? Um, now we have two. Uh, we have a the, the third in the pipeline. We have a third in the pipeline. Uh, I have like third five. in the pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> so do you go, do you go to him and you ask for a certain? Because this obviously you you find bikes. Yeah. So you're are you limited by what you find? Or yeah, and you? people come give bike, but the the bikes that I use is like the real scrap bikes. It's not like hard to come by. Nobody wants them. You, you, you know. find them in the rivers. <laughs> and what do you, what do you yeah. ask for then when you go for I, a bike? I went there and I wanted to change a tire with him. <laughs> and his mate that was working there was like, yo, here we build bikes. Like, we're not changing tires. I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, you send these cool guys away yeah. there. It took months for them yeah. to come back. And I was like, oh. And they then like, they came back. We're in St. Broma as well. Yeah. Wow. And then, then, then like, I, I saw his bike. He has one like this uh, green one with, with the with the bendy uh, Art yeah. Nouveau frame. And I was just like, bro, I haven't seen anything like it. It just looks so mean. It looks like a bull. Like, you know? The chassis. Yeah, oh, I want the that chassis. chassis. I, want that yeah. chassis. Yeah, I was going on and on. And then, like, yeah, he finally made his bike. And, yeah. I build bikes for people, no professional, just people who love bikes, want to ride it, shred it through the city. And then I ask, yeah, what do you want? You want a racer? You want a whatever they want? Bike. But usually it's like, it's no professional athletes or whatever. Even though this legend, he drove the bike. Like, I'll hit some good times, man. Yeah, like, <laughs> takeaway driver, you know, brother. Yeah, 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 I do the real fast takeaway deliveries with that one, man. And you don't, you do it without a battery. You don't do an e-bike. No, man. The battery bikes are too slow. I'll be leaving them on the highway, man. These guys, they just like crushing their hearts, man. <laughs> I mean, you could presumably by now you could have be working you know fabricating bikes you know buying yeah. tubing and doing that stuff this you guy up came up here and came here three times looking for me like yeah i want to take this id and get it get it to china mass produce and commercialize ah no man i don't want that I, i'm anti that kind of stuff so yeah i just want to have fun create some cool things for cool people and that's that's all there is to it chute chute à l'arrière du peloton cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack please this episode of Service Course is also sponsored by Stitch Fix. Now, I'm not a big one for clothes shopping, if I'm perfectly honest. I don't like traipsing around the shops. I don't like trying things on. And so Stitch Fix has been great for me because you basically leave all of the hard work to an expert stylist who selects five items and sends them to you according to the style guide that you fill out at the beginning when you sign up and then the information that the stylist gathers from you as you go along. And you can also change stylist if you don't like uh, what you're being sent. But recently I got my first invite to a Christmas party. Party season is coming up uh, very soon and uh, I'll be, well, I was looking through my wardrobe and realising that not a lot of my uh, more smarter party-going outfits fit me anymore. So I'm going to need Stitch Fix to send me a delivery. So I'm looking forward to that arriving. The last Stitch Fix delivery I got had uh, a couple of real gems in it. Very happy with what my stylist picked out for me. A really nice pair of uh, black jeans. And what else did I get? I got a hoodie and a polo shirt last time, which I really like. But I'm looking for something a bit smarter this time. Might be in the market for a jacket. So we shall see what turns up. If you would like to get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling to set up your profile. And... Usually, you pay a £10 styling fee each time you order, but our friends at Stitch Fix have a special offer for you. Right now, the styling charge for your first order will be waived, giving you the opportunity to try their service completely free of charge. There's no subscription required either, and delivery and returns are easy and free. So if you'd like to get started today with Stitch Fix, go to stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling and you'll receive your first fix styled and delivered to you absolutely free. And to sweeten the deal, you'll get an additional 20% off when you keep all five of the items that have been sent in your fix. So that's stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling. You've got nothing to lose with Stitch Fix. We'll put those details in the show notes too. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Before I rejoin Lizzie, I just want to say thanks as ever to Science in Sport who support everything we do here across the cycling podcast. And once again, recently I was in one of those supermarkets where things cost a little bit less than other supermarkets. And I saw that usual huddle of semi-pro athletes around the science in sport stand because there were some science in sport products there at slightly lower prices than you might find elsewhere but you don't need to go into a bun fight in a discount supermarket because you can get 25% off your next 
Science in Sport order while you're in the comfort of your own home. Just go to scienceinsport.com and enter the offer code SISCP25. That's SISCP25. Well, I enjoyed that. And on the sort of um, subject of hand-built bikes, I I am... I don't know if you... So you know that I'm a big fan of the fixed gear scene. And the fixed gear scene sort of dovetailed with this other weird niche part of cycling, which was tall bikes. And that's that's where you weld one frame on top of another to create a tall bike. And you can keep... Did you weld it yourself? Um, Listen, I've never been up a tall bike. I'm staying very (laughs) close to the crowd. But you can keep... In theory, you can keep adding bikes. And some of these are extreme they, they get really really quite tall to the point where you probably have to duck under a lamppost um but how, I'm fo- how does that how does that work well you i mean do you, you have sort- a belt drive to the bottom that's it yeah i mean i think you can relay you can relay um cranks but you can have a belt drive to the bottom as well obviously it gets harder the more <laughs> the more frames you add but but on that tip there is a guy i've been following who is riding around europe on a tour bike and i've been following his progress very interested Definitely hoping to bring you uh, some of that in next month's episode, if I can. But on that tip, Lizzie, you're also following someone on a slightly different bike, doing a very big trip. I am indeed. And this is, you know, they are actually a big shout out now to uh, Stevie and Laura Massey-Pugh, who are sending me clips every day from their round-the-world record-breaking tandem ride. Um, and hopefully that will be coming to you sometime next year uh, as uh, probably a, a number of episodes of Explore. Um, and they have this beautiful custom tandem frame made by Comotion Bikes in Oregon with actually with steel from the UK. So the, the, the bike has already sort of done the round the world distance from the UK over to Oregon and back again. Um, and the special thing about this frame is that it comes apart into two, which allows Laura and Stevie to perfectly fit it and, and relatively easily into two standard cardboard bike boxes, which has been absolutely essential for their round the world epic because they've had to... Um, arrange for people to meet them at airports with cardboard boxes and then they've had to pack it at the airport because as part of the round the world uh, rules for for guinness um you have to ride to and from the airports ah, so they'll get to the next airport and then they'll dis you know take the bike apart and then uh, put the put the cardboard in the bin and, and go on their way um, in the recycling but- bin obviously the recycling bin, of course. But no, it's a really interesting bike um, and they've got a, a belt drive between the, the front crank and the rear crank um, and they have two belt drives that they're swapping every quarter of the way around the world uh, so that they wear at the right rate. Um, it's, it's really interesting. You'll be hearing a lot more from them next year. But currently they're in Regina in Canada. They're absolutely flying and they're hoping to make their 180-day target back to Berlin. So um, go and follow them, cheer them on, donate to them if you can because um, they're, they're funding all of this through, well, themselves and, and sponsors and, uh, and crowdfunding. And I think it's Stella, S-T-E-L-A, Tandem over on uh, Facebook and Instagram. So go and check them out and give them your support and go on Stevie and Laura you're doing a really great job it's amazing following the progress how are they um just quick how are they uh, sort of doing accommodation and stuff is there is there a degree of bike packing to this as well Oh, well, it's it's fascinating, Tom. So I, I listen I listen to their updates every yeah. day or, or every time that they have Wi-Fi and can send them through. Um, and generally speaking, they are, are trying to stay, uh, you know, indoors when they can because it saves them so much time with, you know, putting the tent up, putting the tent down. They'll get also, a better night's there, sleep. There are bears in Canada, aren't there? So, you know. There are bears. There are bears. <laughs> there are definitely bears. Yeah, and it was interesting. I think it was in, in, in India... Um, they couldn't ride at night because um, the elephants came on the road and, and the risk of injury from an elephant was so high. So it's been absolutely fascinating to follow. But no, generally speaking, they've been um, trying to stay indoors. But You, do, been, you uh, do get a good draft off an elephant, though, Lizzie. <laughs> Hell of a draft, <laughs> but the, honestly. But the average speed is quite low. <laughs> um, but no, there have been many, many instances where they've uh, arrived at... Um, you know, a, a roadhouse in the middle of Australia and it's, you know, been closed and the next one's another 100 miles up the road and then they've had to, to camp in the bush. So, um, no, it's it's really been fascinating following their progress and uh, I'm sure you'll hear a lot more from them next year, but please do go and cheer them on in the meantime. We should do that, Lizzie. You and I. 
<laughs> so well I'll, I'll go on the front and do the pedaling and you can do record the podcast I'll on just the back do, yeah produce, just do some production <laughs> look out for elephants be alright I, I could be on a tall bike at the back so I've got a good great view over there oh, well I don't think we're going to beat their record Tom because I mean they've been averaging 100 miles a day or something well, but uh, maybe well, listen, we can do a tall bike where I'm around the world listen, record no one's done a world record for a tandem tall bike I don't think so there you go I'm just saying put a pin in that for 2023 you know, when the season finishes, <laughs> okay. post post worlds or something, and then we'll uh, then we'll go, we'll head off. I'm doing it. I said, okay. Said, I mean, you're not holding me to that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Lizzie. Well, listen, I will let you go, and um, I'm gonna. In terms of dot watching, then where, where do we go for the dot watching? Because I'm gonna go and head there now and have a look. Well, head over to stellatandem.com. That's S-T-E-L-A tandem.com uh, for all the information about their round-the-world record attempt. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.